This is Doing Translational Research, a podcast from the Bronfenbrenner Center for Translational Research in the College of Human Ecology at Cornell University. Hello, and welcome to Doing Translational Research. I'm Tony Burrow, your host and director of the Bronfenbrenner Center for Translational Research. Today, I'm joined by my dear friend and colleague, Dr. Janice Whitlock. Hi, Janice. Hi, Tony. I so very much enjoy episodes such as this one, where we not only get to know better and chat with a scholar who worked within the center, but also someone who has recently retired or crossed over, if you will, into something different. And today we're going to hear a little bit about what that different work looks like. Um, There's just so much to process and learn from Janice. Before I begin, let me give you a little background on on Janice. Uh, Dr. Janice Whitlock served as a research scientist and associate director for teaching and training in the Bronfenbrenner Center for Translational Research. She continues to direct the Cornell Research Program on Self-Injury and Recovery and has authored numerous publications on non-suicidal self-injury in adolescence and young adulthood, social media and mental health, and in youth connectedness to schools and communities. She earned a doctorate in developmental psychology from Cornell, a master's in public health from UNC Chapel Hill, and a BA from the University of California at Berkeley. We are so fortunate to have your wisdom and expertise here today with us. Uh, So let me begin with a question that we're all needing to know. Why did you retire? Oh, gosh. Well, (laughs) all right. So I'm guessing you're probably going to want to edit this out, but I'll be honest with you, and then we'll move into the next piece. Okay. (laughs) I retired because we don't have a, we don't have a single payer healthcare system in this country. If we had, I would not have retired. So being of age and being you know 55 and having been at Cornell long enough and knowing that I probably wanted to be able to be free to consult and not have to go wed myself to any particular yeah. institution meant I could keep my health benefit. It was the only way for me to keep my health benefit. That's right? fascinating. Isn't that nuts? <laughs> so I wouldn't have been retiring if not. I would have probably still transitioned out of Cornell, but retirement okay. as an idea would have just not crossed my mind because, in fact, I don't feel retired from yeah. my professional life in any real way at all. I, I will continue. I will just continue in a, in a different way, in a different place or a different set of places. No, no, that's absolutely fascinating. So it's, it's, it's an instrument for you. Um, we've sort of evolved as a group of people where retirements are a thing, but now it's a label that you've chosen as a way of navigating and maneuvering the system. It just was an option it for you. It was a systemic pathway. It wasn't even the label that I chose. It was so weird to think about retirement. Like, I'm not really going to retire. I just need to keep my healthcare benefit. And um, that, that gives me more freedom to to be a consultant. If we lived in any most other countries, yeah, yeah, I would not. I would have just said, "I'm going to take a leave, or I'm going to go, and mm-hmm. maybe I'll be back." I mean, I'm not sure. I just needed this time to go do some other stuff. So that's kind of it's an artificial sounding end that really is more of a continuation from my got adventure. it, got it. it. It certainly resonates with things we've talked about, but it's something that. It has a sharper edge hearing you say it now that's both interesting and illuminating of your savviness of how to think about your work and how to pursue it, but also it's sort of an indictment on some social structures uh, that that you have to navigate. Um, Really, really interesting, which actually actually just further contextualizes some some things we, we can talk about today. So let me just back up a step and have you to better characterize the work that you do? I mean, I mentioned some of the highlights, but how do you talk about your work and and how would you describe sort of the big question that you and your work have been aiming to to address or answer? 
I think that at the at its heart, I'm very interested in in how people how we can create environments that help people thrive and not just survive, right? So I started my professional life back in '88. I went right out of college and into the work world in women's health. And um, I did four years of, of various kinds of work in women's health primarily. I was a sex educator. That was the biggest bulk of that time. And I loved it. I loved it. And, but, and, it, and then I went back and got my MPH and then went back out in the world and continued doing program development and evaluation and in these larger areas. But one of the things um, that I noticed is that at the, at the foundation of sort of all the questions that I was concerned with as a, as a sex educator, especially working with high-risk kids, and families um, and communities was we just talk about preventing stuff. We just want them not to do these quote, you know, things we want them. like as so, somebody who had a somewhat hard scrabble childhood myself, I was like, you know what I know, I know in, inside my, inside my own life that there's a lot of pathways to well-being. There's a lot of pathways to thriving and they don't all include avoiding dark, hard places <laughs> So I, I'm not on bandwagon with like, let's try to get everybody to stop doing some things and only do these things. And if they do that, they're going to have a good life. And if they don't do that. So that was just never made any intuitive sense to me at all. And I was much more interested in how do we authentically understand human development, thriving, well-being? How do we build communities and systems that support those real pathways, not just our imagined easy algorithm pathways. <laughs> and, and I also noticed when I was doing that work that at the foundation of a lot of the challenges that I was encountering, because lots of young people and, and people, you know, when you're a sex educator, people tell you stories. They want to tell you lots of stories <laughs> about their life, which is super fun. I, I was like collecting lots of data as in, you know, in that, in that role. Um, and noticing that connectedness and um, connectedness to self, connectedness to others, connectedness to a sense of meaning beyond self and others were all really foundational. They seem to be one of the core drivers of a lot of the pathways I was seeing. Yeah, so that that was kind of fascinating, and I kept that tucked away. And then when I ended up going back for a PhD in developmental psychology, that's what I studied. I studied connectedness primarily connected just to systems and, and others, especially schools and communities for my doctoral work, because I was interested in that. And then the, the self-injury stuff came along in a really odd way. And we can talk about that if you want. But I will say that right when that came into life, I was on the next study I was planning to do was going back to that question I said, or I mentioned earlier about how is it that people use dark nights of the soul or really challenging times in their life to actually become wiser better humans, you know, more pro-social humans. That I'm really interested in because um, I'm pretty convinced that some, some degree of suffering for a lot of us becomes a pathway to deeper compassion, empathy, and um, pro-social behavior. Not always, but that fundamental thing is what I'm interested in. And then the self-injury stuff came along and I got swept away in that. And, but at some point I circled back around to that. And at least one or two of my studies and papers are related to psychological growth as a result of sustained mental health challenges, self-injury in this case. What I, what I absolutely love, I alluded to this earlier in the intro, but what I absolutely love about this perspective that you're sharing about your work is that it, there's an arc and an evolution and an unfolding to this that is hard, I suspect, for people to describe as it's happening, it seemingly requires the ability to kind of take a step back and understand the full scope of what, what a person's doing. And in, in the various areas that you've shown up and your work has pushed forward, 
you've been prolific. You've done work. You've produced the kinds of scholarly and insightful products that people might expect. And you you are known in these in these lanes. And so when I think about you know non-suicidal self-injury, that's a whole thing you're known for. And yet it sits in a place in the fuller trajectory of your work. You don't say that's the thing. It's something you grew into and you're still growing out from and connecting to other things. And so, and so, it's, so there's circles and lines and I'm, so I'm maybe visual here, but there's, it's interesting to, to listen to this narration. A question I'm curious is, in, is you talk about affordances, so maybe it's baked into this response, but how in your work have you worked with communities, community organizations or agencies and maybe however you might construe or define that, but maybe thinking outside of the laboratory or outside of even the campus you, campuses you've been on, how have you connected with others in the pursuit of the work you do? Yeah, that's a great question. I would have to be honest and say that I think about um, agency systems and outside academic sensibilities a lot because that's just the place I come from. I mean, I spent the first 12 years in the field doing work in systems. And I'm part of the reason that I agreed to let myself go back for a PhD. And that really was a conversation I had with myself. I'm like, are you insane? <laughs> I remember when the thought first occurred to me, you know, I'm like pushing my four month old child on West Hill looking oh, at wow. Cornell. I, you could wow. go back because I'm like, I'm bored. Like I need, I need, I need to do something. I know I, that okay. sounds nuts when you have a young, young child, but I'm like, this is not going to work for me. I am not going to be able to stay home and be mommy for too, too long. I really, and Ithaca small, and I don't want to. I don't want to work in a small system. I and, I and this 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 little voice is like, you could go back for a PhD. I'm like, are you insane? I mean, <laughs> partly because the theory driven world that we live in, and I had that I encountered when I was in my MPH program, was just too tidy and frustrating. It was just like this. This is not real life. This is not. You know, we can't distill what I experienced as a as a human growing up, and then as a professional for the past four years at that point into these like little tidy theories. It's so much messier. And I want to understand or grok, even if I can't break it apart and put it into a nice formula, I really want to understand from a wisdom perspective, what the ground floor of, you know, what are the energies that sort of move the people and systems? So, and it could never just be come into, I remember I was, I was asked to, to TA the theory class when in my MPH program and I turned it down because I was God what hubris, right? I was like, no, I will not <laughs> I will not broker in, you know, these simple theories. I mean, in retrospect, it was silly. I should definitely have done. Um, and I was good at it. They asked me to TA because I got it. It's just that it was just so funny. So here I am later going back to do a PhD. And I bring with me those sensibilities. So those sensibilities, because I touched right. a lot right. of different systems in the work that I that I did. I worked in a lot of different kinds of places and with people in, in different states. And so I brought that more than more than recruiting partners, partly because it was just not that expedient in the kind of research. And also when I started the self-injury project, what the field needed was epidemiology. And I had an epidemiological background, you know, like I knew how to do to some degree. I had like definitely cut my teeth in a big way on the self-injury stuff in terms of bigger epidemiological work. But I was trained in, in an MPH program where we did, definitely did a lot of background. So I knew that some of the basics of epi, those aren't really great. I didn't need partners. I needed other than the university. I mean, Cornell was an extraordinarily important partner in that early study, as was Princeton during that and asked if they could participate. And we were able to draw random samples, but it's, you know, it's a little bit different than partnering to, de to deliver an intervention. 
a lot of my work has been um, questions rather than methods driven, I'd say. I mean, it was really like, all right, what's the question we want to answer? What's the best, best method to get to that approach? And how can we do it realistically? <laughs> because, and I will just say one last thing. When I was in New Mexico doing the work there, I was driving the, the CDC community planning process for HIV prevention in the state back in the 90s. And the backbone of that project was community engagement and figuring out what the priorities were going to be and where the money was going to go. So there was every state did it differently, but it was really CDC's commitment to this idea of community plan driven processes that was was really uh, at play there. And I was responsible for doing it here in the state of New Mexico. And it was I mean, it was a chance to bring these very important community based ideas down onto the ground in in a way that had real tangible effects. Right. Oh, my gosh. I definitely walked away feeling like maybe enlightened despotism isn't a bad way to go because it was so hard to, to actually make it happen. So, you know, knowing that and having had these other experiences, I definitely walked into academia saying, I love community-based planning and collaboration, and we definitely should be doing that. And it's really hard sometimes um, to make this happen. So yeah, sorry, to, that was a to, long to, answer. No, no, no. You get, there's, there's a lot in it. And to want to do it is maybe a necessity, but that doesn't make it easier or, or just make it go. You have to kind of push through some difficult things sometimes. And you're right. I appreciate your contextualizing this, that you your pathway isn't just thinking about scholarship and then connecting that to a partner. That may have been for you part and parcel of what this whole thing was, is structures and systems and was something that you had a familiarity with, deep familiarity, and also just interest in before. So that's that's sort of right. emergent in what you said. When you think about your work in any area of it, um, what is something you'd like the public to understand? Uh, whether it's some broad view of scholarship that you've done in general, or a particular sort of finding or direction of your work, what is something that you think about your work? Like, I really wish people better understood this. Is there something that comes to mind for you or things that come to mind for you? Uh, I don't think I've ever had that question. I wish people understood. But when you were talking, it definitely a few things came to mind. Like one is you you mentioned earlier this arc, you know, the closed circles. It has part of it is just aging. You know, I, I am older now. I'm in my 50s. I'll be 56 really soon, which is weird. Um, but I, I'm old enough to, to see some of those arcs in my own life and in other okay. people's life. Like, so it start to see closed circles. And one of the things I see about my my professional path is that it's it's really, it's been this conversation between a lot of different forces. So hmm. academics and theory and, and empirical science and all of that is one huge part of that conversation. But it's also been informed by all my experiences in the field. It's been informed as, you know, in all these different positions we talked about. I was a foster parent uh, at some point in this process. And some of my experiences with my foster child and the system that I had to interact hmm. with to oh, do that my own life, the like the many people that I exchange with. So I think that for me, my professional life and especially the role of academics, it's a part of a of a larger landscape that I want to have make sense. That's why I'm not done yet, you know, and I have to leave the academy to go do some other stuff. There's just like, okay, now it's time for me to move into a different arena in a different set of conversations. But I see it as all a continuation of this conversation about, you know, what really, well, you know, you and I have gone here, like, you know, what is, what makes a life worth living? What is life? 
How do we support it? How do we create structures? Why don't we create structures? Why is it that we have an extraordinary amount of knowledge about how to support life in all ways, human and every other life? And we consistently choose against that. That's what, you know, like, what's that? And I don't, I don't go to policy. I go to like, what is it in humans that are constantly standing in our own way or standing in each other? Like, what is it that, why would people choose death, destruction, war, violence? What is it about us? And then I, you know, I, I sort of winnowing it down. So I feel like it's kind of a, it's a very personal journey through life. And I've been sort of collecting data for myself. I'll probably never be able to really publish that. I'd have to you know, write a book and you guys have to say this resonates, but I couldn't empirically validate anything that I could come up with. I'm sure of that. But yet I, that's the way that I think about it. And I feel like they're worthy questions and I'm willing to have my life be an experiment in a way. I'm willing to let those lead my life, even if it's unconventional. And even if I end up retiring at a time, people feel like, why are you retiring? Why are you retiring? You're just getting started. I think your observation and disclosure that this is a process that's still unfolding for you and there's a narrative to it is a nice segue to the question I would follow up with, which is, it may be hard to reduce this to a single thing, but what is a real world change that your work or your pursuit of your work, you wish really happened? So we spend our time in the world, you know, in, in academia, it's sort of playing with ideas. And then to your point, marrying those ideas with methods to really test them. But what what is something you wish that should show up in the real world and that would be it would make a difference if it did is something you know come what? to mind for you or yeah absolutely it'd be it would be deepened self-awareness and deepened ah, consciousness okay that is what i'm really convinced that in order for us to make meaningful change in the world we have to change because we keep bringing the same kinds of mentality to the problem and then we get the same solution over and over so yeah. So as I've like gone through, as my life has sort of gone through in the pursuit of these questions, this is kind of where I've arrived. And I know it's sort of trans academia, trans intellectual in a way, but because it's not a, it's not a what you say, it's the how you say it. And it's the like where it comes from inside you. It's like all these things, this is where we start to like, you know, depart science and get more into these philosophical ranges. But I'm pretty convinced personally that if we want to make a difference, it has to start with broadened awareness and self-understanding and not formulate self-understanding. So we don't have systems that really support that at this point. We keep everybody very cerebrally busy. It's kind of hard to, to do that when we're constantly toiling away. There, there's, a, there's a real clarity in, in, your, in your answer to that and in connection to your, the whole narrative around, it's not just the thing that needs to happen in the world, it's that we need to support that happening, that it, it's not just the wishful thinking, it needs systems, it needs scaffolding, it needs supports or affordances to, to sort of support that. A question I've grown fond of asking our guests is about what evidence they think the world is waiting on to become more like what they want, right? So they spend, we spend our time and researchers and investigators spend their time producing evidence, pushing on something. Um, and they, they iterate on that idea by producing different kinds of evidence. But given what you said, maybe it's in terms of you know, self-realization, and maybe it's about the environmental affordances that support this kind of work. What is the world waiting on? If it's not there yet, is there a piece of evidence it needs to be better convinced? Is what What is the distance between where we are and where we could be in your mind that 
we need something to show up. We need, we need to produce something. We need to generate an understanding. What is that thing that's missing between where we are and where we could be given, given what you'd like to see in this real world change? I mean, to be honest, I feel like it's, it's not a, it's not a, it's not cerebral. It's, it's an, it's a, it's an understanding of, of self and other that is, that's beyond cerebral. I mean, we keep trying to generate things that satisfy the mind. We have plenty of evidence for that. I don't think we need any more. I'm not sure. I'm not convinced there's any particular fact or set of facts that would make a difference in anything for anyone at this point. <laughs> like that's not what's driving where we're going. It's really emotional and whatever else goes along with that. And we don't speak that language very well. And we don't teach others to speak it very well or understand it or honor it or move with it. Or, you know, it, it requires often to really do that. Well, you have to quiet the mind, those, the speaking mind. And we just don't, especially, you know, in the West, we just cannot get quiet and listen in other ways. And yet, you know, our speaking mind um, tells us over and over and over, for example, and it's true empirically, we can see it. Um, it you know, when I say self-awareness, I'm also including some very tangible things like you know, social emotional learning starting very young. So people learn to tune into what they're feeling, that the, you know, the mm -hmm. un and subconscious drivers get become more conscious and accessible because then you can work with them. I mean, I'm, you know, a lot of the work that I'm kind of working on now is like, how do we give average people who aren't clinically trained some degree of clinical sensibility because we have a, a really growing mental health crisis, it, not yeah. just here but everywhere right, and right. we it's the answer isn't just send everybody to therapy we don't have enough therapists and a lot of times that does i mean it may work but a lot, for a lot of people it, it doesn't actually sure. work or it, sure. it takes time and yeah. we need like we need all of us to have some degree of sensibility that psychological literacy so that's i mean in my you know we haven't talked sort of where i'm going what i'm doing but that is really tangibly what i'm pushing on is like how do we up level people how do we provide supports for up-leveling people, up people's psychological literacy, basically? Yeah, no, that, that's interesting. That, that to me, I, I follow the response, is that that could be a thing that you see missing. Or, and I don't mean to yeah. just point out deficits, but you see some space. We, we need some work in yeah. there um, of, of sort of upping everyone's competencies to be able to navigate this without defaulting or outsourcing that to some industry that's never going to be adequate. We, we all could benefit from having more in that. It might be nice to share with this, Janice, if you're willing. It's a retirement that's not really a retirement. And you're clearly still grappling with your contributions of what that will look like and how to how to continue pushing ideas forward and, and working with others to do so. So do you want to say a word about what you're up to and what where you'll be, where we can find you? Well, I mean, that is kind of so this this idea that, you know, in order to to create a different world, we need to be different as creators. Like we need some fundamental shifts inside as creators is drives me down to the like, OK, well, what do we need to do that? Well, we need more psychological savvy we need uh, for self and others we need more compassion we need more empathy we need to be able to move we understand emotions and the subconscious that that, that so that bundle is really kind of where i'm heading and the, the thing the way i'm doing that is through working i mean i'm doing the translation part of translational research at this point i mean i've been consulting for example with the jed foundation which i think you know it's a suicide prevention and mental health promotion um, foundation in the city that has really, really big reach. You know, that's part of the reason I was attracted to it because I don't know, they reach hundreds of thousands of young people through the college programs that they have in the high school programs. And then they, they also get approached um, by 
large entities. So whether it's like I'm doing some work right now with PBS and with Seize the Awkward and Viacom and Pink and Morgan Stanley. And like, so it's really, it's really big. And so they're like, well, how do we message? How do we message this? How do we do this up-leveling, for example, through the pathways that we have? And I, I like the challenge. It's really, it's like, yeah, that's a really good challenge. And I love being in the position of helping to formulate the messages and the, like, how do we sequence it so that we can, you know, and how do we use these channels, which seems so simple in some ways. Um, but, but the need is so huge. And the number of entities that approach a place like Jed and say, please work with us is it's just growing every day because the mental health challenges are so, so intense that I feel like I have a, you know, I just have this wonderful opportunity to come full circle in a way for my whole life. Everything I've learned from working at Cornell, it's just, just, you know, I loved the time that I had there. It was so rich. Um, but now it feels like I don't have time in my own life to spend another two or three or four years pursuing another study that may or may not come up with an implication that may or may not actually make a difference in the world that hasn't been come, you know, it has we haven't arrived at before. <laughs> like now is the time to take all of that I know and have been exposed to and try to, to use it to move the needle in coordination with other people and other, other spaces. That's, that's- that's super powerful. I, I, that's really, really interesting to hear. And thank you for sharing that. It's neat that you're, you may not have said yes to teeing the course, but you said yes to a different kind of challenge here. And it sounds, <laughs> it sounds like a big one. It may be as formidable in its own way, but I follow that it's time to, to do the translational work uh, in a way that, it, that another study on its own may, may not have, have left you with. Um, you're up to so much, Janice, and um, you've played such a central part of our Braun from Brenner Center for Translational Research you'll be missed, but it's also awesome that there's an extension of our center out in the world doing other things that we know yeah. we can keep in touch and we can find each other. Um, but it's such such an honor to have worked with you, to overlap with you for, for, for a time uh-huh. that's here and that you're a partner, if you will, out in the world doing cool things is, is really important to us. So yeah, thank you for your thank service you. and your time here. Oh, you're so, so welcome. And yeah, I don't, I don't think of it as an ending. It's just a continuation. I have no, Good. I have every Good. desire to continue. I think there'll be some interesting opportunities that we have yet to talk about. Um, I, I think so too. I, I know that, I know that to be true with you and our, our conversations um, and I know others at the center, I, um, that that's the neat part is there may, there, there will likely be things that get churned up as new opportunities for us to work mm-hmm. together. So um, yeah. So really, really cool. This was so much fun. Thank you so much for joining us, Janice. It was a great conversation. Thank you for being with us today. Oh, you're so welcome. I was so glad to be with you. Thank you for being with me today and interviewing me. Absolutely. Wonderful. And thank you all for listening to Doing Translational Research. We'll see you next time.